Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and the Northwest Community College campuses. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets, oh, and still others, one of the prophets. But what are, what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to the Father's glory with the Holy Name. All right. Um, as we've talked about, uh, the first four of the Ten Commandments all confront uh, the different ways that we try to limit the God of creation, the God of the Exodus, and the God who, through the person in Jesus, uh, the person work of Jesus Christ, has reconciled all things to Himself. Right? How we uh, we've talked about how we dilute God's place in our life by looking at the first commandment. We we've looked at how we try to to domesticate God and the second commandment. And tonight we're going to focus on this question: Are we using God for our own purposes? As we look at the third commandment, which comes to us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, I think there's two things that we have to address as we begin this conversation. Before we can get to the heart of the third commandment, of the Ten Commandments, but I think there's two things that we kind of have to kind of just go ahead and confront. And the first is this. Uh, the third commandment is not about cussing. Um, all right, I have no clue, I have no clue how this commandment that was given so many years ago became about and got reduced to not saying 10 to 20 words in the English language. It has nothing to do with that. Now, I'm not standing back behind this proverbial pul pulpit and endorsing, and endorsing cussing. Um, but here's the thing, we can't just clean up our language and move on from the third commandment and act like we're following it, because it's not the point of it. Now, the second thing, and this one will take a little bit longer, um, is that we can't, um, is that we, we really, I think, don't understand on a deep level what names really meant in ancient Near, ancient Near Eastern culture, right? Which is the world of the Old Testament. Um, one's name back then is tied up in, one in one's character, one's being, one essence, right? Shakespeare um, once famously said, what is in a name? A rose by another name would still smell as sweet, right? Basically, it doesn't matter. What you, what you call a rose, it's still the same thing 
anyways. It's not any way tied up in its character. And I think we live by that um, in this world, right? Uh, in our day and age. Um, a name is uh, no more or less than a sound that you make to get someone's attention, right? Um, just an illustration of this. Uh, there are three bins in this room. And if you called out the name Ben, uh, all three of us would turn our head, right? And so we have tried to devise plans and, and, and other things. Kennedy has worked very hard on this um, to uh, you know, come up with plans and in different ways and different things you can yell at us so that we'll know when our head's supposed to turn and when it's not, um, right? But, but a name is just nothing more than just something you, you say to somebody to get their attention. But as I said, in ancient Near Eastern culture, there was no divorce between a person's essence and character and being and their name. Just two examples in the Bible. Um, Abram, uh, well, Abram, uh, which means exalted father. We call him Abraham. We just, you know, we almost never deal with the fact that he was actually originally Abram. Um, had his name changed by God to Abraham. So Abram meant exalted father. What, does anyone know what Abraham means? That's right. Yeah, it's it's father. Uh, it's a it's exalted father of, of a multitude, right? So when God promised Abraham that he, or Abram that he was going to be the his descendants were going to be as populous as the sea on the sand shore and the stars of the sky, he's like, and by the way, I'm changing your name to Abraham. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so basically it's, just, it's multiple, right? I mean, it's just multiple, multiple. And so um, another just example is Jacob means to follow. So Jacob and Esau, Esau came out first. Jacob came out second. So Jacob means to follow. That was his name. It, his name's tied up with who he is as a person. And he had his name changed by God to Israel, right? Now, what does Israel mean? Do, we, do any of us know what Israel means? Say again. Pilgrimage to God. It means to wrestle with God. Jacob wrestles with God, and God changes his name, right? So one's name is tied up with one's being. And that is why it was so important when God shared with Moses his name. In Exodus chapter 3, God had come to Moses in the burning bush, and he commanded him to go to Pharaoh and demanded the Israelites, uh, you know, Moses would go to Israel, I mean, go to Pharaoh and say, you know, let my people go. You're supposed to let them, you know, you're supposed to liberate them. And then picking up... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 13, um, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, this is Moses, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And remember, right, his name is wrapped up in his character. And so in other words, what God is saying to Moses, I am the unmoved mover. This whole Exodus thing is my idea that I'm inviting you to participate in, not the other way around. I exist outside of your plans. I exist outside of your purposes. I exist outside of your actions. But the same cannot be said, cannot be said true of you. I pre-exist your ideas, and I pre-exist your thoughts. I pre-exist your feelings. I am who I am, but the same cannot be said true of you. You don't get to set the agenda. I do. This is what God's name means. It tells us something about him when he reveals his name. Now, back in uh, the olden days, before the great practice of the pinky promise was developed, people would assure somebody that they were right, you know, in an argument, or they would assure somebody 
that they would follow through on their promise, not by doing the pinky promise. I, you know, I promise, I'm not kidding, this is true. Um, by swearing by someone's name, right? It was an appeal to authority, right? It was a, well, this person will back me up on this, right? Or this person is, you know, will ensure, you know, I can't follow through, they'll follow through for me, right? And they'll pull in someone higher. It's an appeal to authority, right? So they would never do this with, you know, their brother or their sister or some random family member, you know, or just the guy down the street, right? I mean, who would they probably appeal to? Quite often. Rulers, right? And what? Back then. Parents. What up? Gods, right? I mean, this is a world of many gods. They're going to appeal to all the different gods. Like, oh, you know, God and I will back me up on this. That was the common practice of the day. But the problem with an appeal to authority, right? And so, so God has given his name to his people, right, earlier in Exodus. And God now has this concern that this is going to happen with his name, right? Because the problem with the appeal to authority is that we're using someone else's character, someone else's essence, someone else's being for my purposes. I'm assigning God's name to my actions and my plans. I mean, it's just manipulation, right? Think about an appeal to authority. It doesn't help the one whose name by what you're swearing by. In fact, depending on what you are swearing them to, it could really degrade them, couldn't it? Rather than helping them, we're just leveraging their authority for my goals. So when this comes to God... We aren't just not glorifying God when we assign his name to our plans and purposes and actions. We're doing literally the exact opposite. When we assign God's name to something less than his character, we are degrading who he is in this world or who he's at least perceived to be. Um, after World War, World War, I always struggle saying World War One, uh, Germany was burdened with a lot of war debt, right? Uh, some would say appropriately so. Um, and because of that, they were bankrupt. I mean, just completely and utterly bankrupt. I mean, they, they, they were saddled with all the war debt because they started the war, right? Um, and so they printed a whole lot of money. So that, that was their idea, right? They're like, we don't have enough money to pay off this war debt. We, our economy's tanking. What are we going to do? Let's just print a whole butt ton of money. Now, what is the problem? With doing that, somebody? Inflation. Yeah, inflation, right? What, what do you say? Yeah, it just lowers the value of money, right? So that is what inflation is all about, right? Inflation is that means that the more money that you print, the less valuable it is, right? It's not a scarce resource anymore, so it's less valuable. Their money had become so unvaluable that by, the, uh, by November 1923, hear this, 42 billion marks, which is dollars in their, you know, language, was not just one American dollar. It was one American cent. That's how much money they had printed off, okay, to deal with, to, to deal with their problems. And so you, if you go on the Google um, and you look up uh, just Germany, World War I, inflation, you, you can find pictures like this, right? You see, this is, this is $100 bills, you know, equivalent to us. Just, she made a dress out of them, because why not? They weren't worth anything. I mean, that's like .06. This is a kid, and these are stacks of bills. It's just a 
She's just playing with like Lincoln Logs or Legos or something. This one, I love this, it's wallpaper. It was cheaper to just like use this as wallpaper than buy wallpaper. And then this one, if you can see in this one, she's, um, she's using uh, bills. I mean, can you imagine using American dollar to do this? Uh, to, to, to kindle her stove. Can you imagine that? If we just had a camper out here and we just used stacks of dollar bills to do that. It's so devalued their money. And I think that gets to the heart of the, t uh, the third of the Ten Commandments. We're not supposed to devalue the name of the Lord by throwing it around willy-nilly in ways that it wasn't ever intended to be used. Or as one translation puts it, don't lift up the name of the Lord to empty purposes. And I think that begs the question and forces us to kind of ask the question, well, then what is worthy of God's name? Right? If this is something that is supposed to be so revered and so like, so kind of careful how we use this and wield this. And, and by the way, we as Christians bear what? The name of God. How we bear it. Well, then what's worthy of God's name? And there's four biblical uses. The first is a covenant. A covenant promise. In Genesis uh, 22, God uh, had asked Abraham, he was Abraham by this point, to sacrifice his son Isaac, through which God was supposed to fulfill the promise that he had given to him in Genesis chapter 12. And it was a test. When Abraham demonstrated his faithfulness, God provides a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. And then God needs to reassure Abraham, right? He needs to reassure Abraham. Abraham is just, you know, just like thought he was about to kill his son through whom the promises of God were going to be fulfilled. God told him his promises were going to be fulfilled. He needed some reassurance, right? So God swears by his own name. That whole idea of taking an oath by someone else's name, God appeals to his own authority. By the way, God's the only person that's allowed to do that. And the angel of the Lord called upon Abraham um, from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, right, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants, your descendants numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations of earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Nothing less, God's name can be used for nothing less than God's plan to save his people. God's utter commitment and covenant to his people. Just a few more examples. Psalm 13, 1 through 3. This is just one of many, but all throughout the Psalms, right, we see people praising God's name. Praise the Lord. You search, praise the name of the Lord, right? And we just see this throughout, right? We do this all the time in worship. We praise the name of the Lord. This is an intimate moment of connection between God and his people. And by the way, the rest of Psalm 13, 1 through 3 just goes on and talks about how God stoops down into the marginalized, into the outcast, and he lifts them up. Again, God's intention to save his people from all sorts of distress. God's utter commitment to be faithful to his promises. The name of the Lord should be used for nothing less than that. The third one, baptism, right? 
as we're saved through the waters of baptism, just as, as Israel was saved uh, through the waters of the Red Sea, and, and, and as we participate in the death, burial, burial and resurrection of Jesus through, through, through you know, being put down in the water and raised back up, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The ultimate covenant promise, right? That gets to use the name of the Lord. And then finally, in prayer, right? In John 14, Jesus invites his followers and his disciples to pray in his name. And by the way, the context of this, by the way, is just, he's like, I'm going to leave. The Spirit's going to come. And through, because I'm doing that, you're going to be able to do more miracles than I am. And you're going to be able to, to, to serve me better than you would have been if I had stayed down here with you. And so it's all about basically when he says, because he says that, I feel like I have to point this out. You may ask uh, me for anything in my name and I will do it. That isn't I get to ask for, you know, a Mercedes and get a Mercedes. That's you get to ask me anything inside of my will and in my name because my name's attached to my character, right? Those aren't divorced and I will do it, right? Does that make sense? So something I think we should be really particular about as Christians, right? We bear God's name. But yet again, God's name is used for nothing less than God's covenant faithfulness to his people, his utter commitment to his people. So what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time looking at Mark chapter 8, which was the passage that Mary Beth read for us earlier. Because I don't really think that there's a better passage that explains and illustrates humanity lifting up the, God, the name of God to empty purposes than this one. And it all revolves around Peter. Mark, as a book, is really uh, split into two sections, and this is the pivotal moment in the book. The first uh, eight chapters are all about um, Jesus gathering his disciples in really the first, like, probably two years and a half of his ministry, at least the majority of it, all right? And then the final, the final eight chapters, 9 through 16, are all about Jesus' road to the cross by way of Jerusalem. Every bit of 9 through 8, uh, 16 is Jesus heading to Jerusalem so that he can die on the cross. And this is what sets that in motion. <clears throat> These 12, these 12 have been following Jesus around for quite some time now, right? It's probably two and a half years. And they, they've watched him heal people that shouldn't have been healed and feed an enormous amount of people who shouldn't have been able to be fed and cast out demons that no one else could cast out. But things weren't always going to be that way, right? Jesus knew where he was heading, he was heading to the cross. And so he wanted to kind of have a gut check moment with these guys. And so he asked them, well, who do people say that I am? And they start listening off. Some say you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Some others say Elijah. And others just say, you know, well, you're one of the prophets. And then he turns it on them, right? He's, you know, slowly just kind of ratcheting up the temperature in the room. Well, how are you? Who do you say that I am? And in a sense, Peter nails it right on the head, man. Peter gets it. He gets it. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. And we can kind of get into his mind a little bit. Jesus gives him that affirmative nod. Yeah, you're right. When he says, I'm the Messiah. And I don't know, the way I imagine Peter, he's kind of playing it cool on the outside, but on the inside, he's dancing around like a little boy that I'm the one who got it right. And this is a big freaking deal. This guy I've been following is God in the flesh. 
He's the one that God has promised us. He's the one who's going to come in, going to militarize the Jewish people and overthrow the Roman Empire. In other words, I've hitched my cart to the right horse. Or to use a basketball phrase, uh, I, Jesus will be LeBron James and I'm going to be Rich Paul. Anyone get that other than Kelso? Which same is here? No, no, okay. So, um, right, you know, I've, I've hitched my cart to the right horse. I've, I've done the right thing by following this man, right? I've left everything and it's finally going to happen. We're going to head into Jerusalem and we're going to overthrow the Romans. And as all of this is going through Peter's head, Jesus just cuts him off, basically, mid-thought, and says that as the Messiah, I must be rejected by the very Jewish leaders that you think I'm supposed to militarize, and I must be killed at their hands and not overthrow the Romans, but on a Roman cross. And then I'll rise from the dead. But I don't think Peter even heard that part because, man, like, he was way too concerned about the first part. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. All that stuff that was flowing through his head spills out. No, 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 no. You're not going to die at the hands of the Jewish leaders. You're going to militarize them. You're not, you're not going to die on a Roman cross. You're going to overthrow Rome. I mean, have you watched yourself lately? You can gather a crowd, which can become an army. You can feed that army with a snap of a finger. And when someone gets wounded, you can just heal them. You were made for this, Jesus. And when Peter rebukes Jesus, what he does is he breaks the third commandment. See, Peter had his plans. He left his nets and he had his plans. He was going to follow this man named Jesus, but he had his plans about it. It was going to be on Peter's terms. He had his purposes. Peter had his agenda, and then what did he do? He smacked God's name right on it and said, this is the will of the Father. He told the one who set the world into motion, the one who exists outside of our thoughts and our actions, the one who pre-exists our ideas and our feelings, it's my plans, my agenda, my way, but your name. I'm co-opting your name and all the authority that it has, and it's going to be my way. And if Jesus hadn't rebuked him, and had gone by Peter's plans, then you got to think what might have happened. The name of Yahweh would have been cheapened. The passion of Jesus, his, his arrest, his trial, his, his suffering by being whipped and then the nails going through his hands and his feet and his crucifixion, which has secured for God's people a kingdom that is without end, would have been traded would have been traded for the temporary and fleeting power of humanity. We would have lost the passion of Jesus for the power of humanity. That's what it means to misuse the name of God. And I think we have to ask ourselves the question, how often do we, like Peter, make that mistake? How often do we wield God's name for our own purposes? and thus cheapen it to the world. I mean, think about social media, just for a minute. How often do you see those posts that say, y'all probably don't do this, but I mean, you know, you may see this. Only real Christians will share this. 
attaching God's name to something that, let's be honest, it's below. How about an article that claims you can only be a Christian, you can only bear the name of Christ, attaching God's name to something, if you hold socio-political view X, Y, or Z. How many of you seen a video or, you know, some post of a political leader referencing Jesus to justify a certain behavior or action or view? And I think when we do that, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, where's God's name used in the Bible? And for what purposes? You know, are we possibly breaking the third commandment? You see, we don't get to lift up the name of the Lord to empty purposes. It's not just that we can't do negative things with God's name. Hear this. It's not just that we can't do negative things with God's name, but neutral things, slightly good things, aren't good enough for it. Only the best thing, the good news, the gospel, gets to bear God's name. Now let's get a little bit more personal and ask ourselves these questions. How often do we ourselves come up with a plan for our life and then ask God to bless it? Setting the agenda rather than the one who pre-exists us and outside of us setting the agenda. That doesn't happen on college campuses at all, right? God, I'm going to do this. And I really just pray that, you know, I just want to invite you into it. We should never invite God to anything. God's always inviting us into something. We need to be more careful with our language, maybe. How often do we ourselves reject the way of Jesus? I mean, think about this. His call to the cross. His call to deny ourselves. His call to forgive those who have harmed us. His call to pray for those who persecute us. His call to wield power on behalf of others rather than ourselves. His call to seek out the marginalized rather than a higher status. His call to withhold judgment and leave that to God because God alone is the one who should be trusted with judgment. His call to share the gospel with everyone. How often do we reject all those things but still bear the name very openly as Christians and therefore degrade the name of who Christ is? How often does that happen? means something to bear that name. It means that we are always in jeopardy. You hear that? Always in jeopardy of breaking the third commandment. Because as long as we bear the name of Christian, it's very, very easy to misuse God's name, isn't it? We should not lift it up to empty purposes. As one preacher said of this text, the problem is not the decreasing number of Christians in our pews, but that Christians in our pews are not Christian enough. You can read a lot of articles about how the church is in disarray, especially in the pandemic, how congregants, uh, con you know, the, the, just a lot less people in churches these days, and yada, 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 this. And problem with that. The problem is not the decreasing amount of people in the pews or the chairs of church, but that those of us who reside in the chairs and the pews of church just don't happen to be Christian enough. Let me, um, let me close by just walking us through this last bit 
in Mark chapter 8. And then he called the crowd to him. This is after he's rebuked Peter. Well, like Peter ends up dying for gospel, right? I mean, Peter turns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. If Christ heads to the cross, therefore we do too. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's, that's what we get to use God's name for. That's what we get to bear. If we're bearing God's name, that's what it's all about. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Are we trading the passion of Jesus for the fleeting power of humanity? passion of Jesus, which secures for God's people an eternal kingdom, an unshakable kingdom, that nothing can taint, that nothing can harm, that nothing can attack successfully, that nothing can end. We trade that for the fleeting power of humanity, for the sense that I get to be in control, that I get to set the agenda, that I get to choose what I do with my life and how I go about it. That I get to hold this grudge. But yet still bear the nominal name of Christian. Why would we forfeit our soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, I mean, think about that, right? We bear Christ's name, but I mean, just be honest with us. How often are we ashamed of what he has to say? Scared of it. I mean, I, I am. I'm at least scared of it. I may not be ashamed of it. I'm at least scared of the implications of, of what it might have on my life. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes, the Father's glory with the holy angels. Let me just end on this point. Does Jesus give up on Peter? Someone say the right answer. Come on. No. So you find yourself convicted tonight, as I do. Jesus is not casting us aside. Those of us who break the Lord, the third commandment, seemingly each and every day is how I feel. Jesus is not casting us aside, but rather he's instilling us with his Holy Spirit, which is closer, forming us into the image of his son. His name that we've been